What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I am Mark Stay. And a big thank you to, as always, to our patrons on Patreon and our academics in the Bestseller Academy. And we have two, we have two new patrons this week. Uh, so uh, make room at the back, budge up everyone, make room for Kate Housen and Jeffrey Mason. Thank you to both of them for supporting us and keeping the podcast going. If you want to support the podcast, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. And not only, but also a big thank you to the sponsor of this week's episode, Plotter, uh, which is huge fun. I've been, I've been tinkering with it. It's not just one of these things that you can, you know, you can, you can sort out, uh, the order and different, different story threads and characters. You can actually create story Bibles with Plotter. Have you seen this, Mr. D? I have. Yeah. And this is really interesting, isn't it? Because. I know a lot of people like to hang on up notes on different characters. Yeah, but this yeah. is like this kind of really intense database where you can create tags, you can you can visually organize your characters, your places, link characters. This is a bit I like. You can link your characters and places to your scenes because you know when you get really deep into a novel, and you you, you can't you know sometimes I remember when we were writing back to reality we were kind of like trying to work out <laughs> yeah but what time of year was it what the weather's like and we we're flipping between two different countries and this helps you get completely on track keeps everything consistent and has all these geographical trivia that you can add in as well so it's it's really really powerful isn't it really and so easy to use nice and clear lots of white space I like that it's uh, for my my little brain it's really really nicely laid out so love it yeah cool stuff plotter one one of the things one of the things about plotter as well which I love is within within all the different aspects of the software is that you can filter things which means if instead of having this massive all this all this uh, you know you can basically give everything tags and you can search by tags or filter by tags so you can drill right the way down to like one scene or one you know which are the yeah. characters in that scene and that is so much more powerful than trying to do everything just on a spreadsheet or on you know bits of paper so so yeah definitely check it out folks because um Mark and I've been playing with it and we love it and if you're very visually minded as well you'll you'll absolutely love it definitely. they actually have a free trial on their website um and it's ridiculously cheap as well if you want to buy it. So if you want to check it out, pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash plotter. And that's P-L-O-T-T-R. So bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash plotter. So Mr. Stay, you've got a bit of the snibbles today, I hear. I'm full of cold. Yes, I've got I've got the old man flu. So uh, it's that time of year. Apologies, listeners, if I come across as a bit gruff, a bit of a cotton geezer in this episode. Yeah. Paul Mark so, was yeah. was 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 coughing his lungs up before we started this episode. And he said And then he said to me, he said to me these immortal words. He said, Whatever you do, don't make me laugh. So folks, as you are probably aware, my mission today is to make Mark laugh as much as possible. Clear out the sinuses, clear out. No, I'll I'll I think we should keep it very somber. Uh how can we well, be? Like, let, how do we get into a somber mood, Mark? How do we do? Well, that? Look, look, no, I mean, we do. The thing is, we do need jokes. So here's the thing, people. Uh, we're recording our Christmas show in a couple of days. So, um, and what we want are your Christmas cracker jokes. Okay, so send us in your Christmas jokes. Now, I know. Uh, I think in America they don't have Christmas crackers, do they? So no, just we do. Explain. We do. This we is- do it. We do. Well, at least in Canada we have. In Canada you do. I don't think they do in the States. So this is a this is a great British tradition where um, you know, when you're having your Christmas dinner, you have these Christmas crackers, which are these strange little tubes with bangers in them that you pull, and out comes a paper hat and a little novelty and a terrible joke. So we want to uh spread this tradition across the world. So send us your tra- 
terrible traditional Christmas jokes. They can be one-liners, they can be shaggy dog stories, uh, but we need them by the 7th of December. So if you listen to this on the Monday that this goes out, you've only got, as usual, we've left it too late. Um, if, if, if you, if you've, um, so yeah, do send them in. So just send them by email, or if you want to record it yourself, just record it yourself and send it to us uh, via our contact tab on the website as well. So just as an example, what are Christmas sweaters made from, Mr. D? I don't know, Mrs. S. What Christmas sweaters made from? Fleece Navidad. There we go. That's the level that we're looking for. <laughs> but, but we should also throw out there as well. You don't. They don't have to be writing themed. But if you can write a Christmas cracker writing themed joke, then you'll get extra points for sure and okay. possibly okay. be read out. But yeah, we'll give yeah. you all a shout out for sending those in. So thank you. Please, please. We want we want like the maximum grown factor here as well. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I've always wondered, Mark, actually, I've always had this thought, like who is the person who actually has the job of writing Christmas cracker jokes? And 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 where do you find out about those jobs? And how how do they spend the whole year writing them? Do they have to write like a thousand new jokes? And it's just a, a strange old world, Wait, isn't it? You do see because I subscribe to a couple of uh, freelancer newsletters, and you will get uh, occasionally you get calls. Okay, people need this, that, and the other. And sometimes it's oh, we need a list. Someone who can do lists of this and that for Christmas for a Christmas magazine or a Christmas website. So I think you know if you're in with the right circles. Then uh, I mean I you know I did a quick Google looking for Christmas jokes and the same ones crop up again and again and again. So um, you it's know. like carols, right? They're just uh, the old nice the old standards. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, maybe yeah. We could maybe we could do our very own. And actually, if you want to, if we if you want to find out how you can be uh, eco friendly, then tune into our Christmas episode. Um, because Mark will be telling you about how they do Christmas crackers a little bit different in their household, which I love. Yes. Brilliant <laughs> stuff. Now, Mark, let's find out about today's wonderful guest, SJ Bennett. Yes, this was such fun to do. So SJ Bennett, having published nine novels and a non-fiction book for young adults, uh, Sophia switched genres to adult cosy crime. So in 2020, her new series, which get this, features Queen Elizabeth II solving crimes, started with the first book in the series, The Windsor Knot, and was snapped up in a series of auctions and preempts in the UK, US, France, Germany, Italy. It was sold in 20 countries and has sold over 100,000 copies. Uh, Sophia's latest is Murder Most Royal, which is a Waterstones best crime and thriller book of 2022 and a love reading book of the year 2022. So we discuss why she was initially scared to write a novel, the part that a life-changing diagnosis played in her career, and what to do when you get a royalty statement for 97 pence. <laughs> Brilliant. So let's dive in and listen to Mark chatting with S.J. Bennett. S.J. Bennett, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today? I'm really good. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. And um, we're here to celebrate your new book, Murder Most Royal. And I love the premise behind this series. And we're, we're going to go back. We're going to go through your whole career, soup to nuts. We're going to do the whole thing. But uh, the new book and this series, the premise is just brilliant. Tell us about Murder Most, Mor Murder Most Royal. <laughs> um, it is the third in my Her Majesty the Queen Investigates series, which does exactly what it says on the tin. Um, it's people say, do you mean the queen, the actual queen? Yes, the actual <laughs> queen, uh, Elizabeth II. Um, and the first trilogy is set in 2016. Um, and uh, book one was called The Windsor Knot, and that was set in Windsor Castle as she was about to celebrate her 90th birthday. And book two was called A Three Dog Problem, and that was set at Buckingham Palace. Um, and now book three is set at Sandringham, and it's Christmas. 2016. Harry has a very nice girlfriend that he's very in love with, but nobody's met her yet. Um, <laughs> and the Queen has a hideous head cold, um, and she just wants a really quiet family Christmas. And a severed hand is washed up on the beach, um, very near where Sandringham meets the sea. I knew very, very little about Sandringham when I started researching this, but it's a beautiful part of the world in North Norfolk. Um, a great place to set murders. There are so many murders, uh, fictional murders in East Anglia. It's fascinating. <laughs> um, and in this one, uh, the queen is the person who recognises the victim from the signet ring on the severed hand. Um, and she realises it's somebody she knew really well as a child. 
And she just can't get let go of this one. She keeps on being told things by people because she's kind of part of the scenery down there. Um, and so with her able assistant, Rosie Ashodi, um, she she sort of tries to get it all wrapped up before she heads back to London in February. Fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Well, the, the series, um, as you said, people go, is it really the Queen? It is the actual Queen. And I believe it was inspired by a mistake in an episode of The Crown. Is that right? Well, kind of, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I disagreed with Peter Morgan. I often disagree with Peter Morgan about things. Um, and I was driving up to write, I was, I was going to write uh, a detective series starring a cyborg billionaire detective. And it was basically if Altered Carbon had met Hercule Poirot, that would have been my series. Um but it wasn't really going very well. And I was thinking about the crown when I was driving up. And I was just thinking, the queen misplaced a soldier on a model battlefield. And it was a funny moment because then, the you know, the, um, her private secretary could put it back in the right place. And I just thought she wouldn't. Because my, my father met her a dozen times. He was in the army. He, um, he spoke to her a lot about regimental history. And she was an expert on it. He said she knew more about it and cared more about it than almost anyone else he ever met. And she knew her battles. And if, if you have a big battle set out, it's usually Waterloo or something really mm -hmm. famous. She would know it. And um, it's rude to pick up somebody's model soldier, so she kind of wouldn't. But if she did, she'd put him back and probably in a better place than he'd been before. And I just thought, do you know, I really know this woman. It's crazy how the stupid little facts that I've picked <laughs> up about her over the years. Um, and, and then I got to thinking what a great detective she'd make if she wanted to. I mean, I think... The one thing that I have changed with the Queen is she she loved to bury her head in the sand and delegate when it came to difficult problems at home. Um, you know, she was fabulously, she was very intelligent, fabulously diplomatic and all sorts of things, but she didn't like problems at home. So I think she, in fact, in real life, she was the opposite of, of a detective. But if she wanted to be, she had access to all the experts that she could have wanted to use and she... Uh, she knew her world really well, so she'd notice if anything was wrong. And, and I just thought, God, she'd be brilliant. And the settings, obviously, you know, the detective fiction, so important. They'd be perfect. Um, and she'd have to do it secretly because otherwise we'd know and we don't know. So clearly she'd be a secret detective. And then my kind of my billionaire cyborg just wasn't as interesting as this, <laughs> this real woman. Um, so I, I planned out a sort of like a nine book series in my head, a bit sort of J.K. Rowling-esque uh, by the time I'd sort of the weekend was over. And then I just kind of had to write them, really. That sounds absolutely brilliant. I just want to let's go back and figure out how uh, young Sophia um, becomes obsessed with the Queen. You said that your, your father had met her. I mean, you had an extraordinary childhood. As I understand it, you had the Berlin Wall at the bottom of your garden. Is that right? Yeah, we really did. I remember there was they were celebrating 20 years since it came down, something like that. And they they lit um, torches all around the edge of, of Berlin. And I was thinking that they would have gone around the end of our garden, but surely not because we lived in West Berlin. We didn't live near Checkpoint Charlie, where, you know, the, the, the border with the east was. And, and, and then, of course, I looked at it and I realised we lived in far West Berlin in the early 1980s. And, and my father was um, in charge of a regiment there. And, and, of course, it was surrounded by East Germany. So, yes, our, our back garden really did back on to East Germany. And the Russians were convinced that Christmas was some kind of Western ploy to let, get them off guard. And one year at Christmas, we wouldn't be celebrating with Turkey. We'd be secretly getting ready to invade. So every year at Christmas, they would really ramp up their defences. It was so sweet because we really were celebrating. Um, and I remember once I, I had dream that the space shuttle crash landed in our garden and there were eight astronauts to breakfast and and we just had to feed them fresh orange juice and stuff and this did not feel abnormal to me in my dream because <laughs> Berlin was extraordinary yeah it was amazing my parents would they'd dress up in their finest and be driven off through Checkpoint Charlie to to go to the opera in the east because the idea was to kind of show off but the strangest thing they said was there were there were really no animals that they saw, no pets and things in East Berlin at the time. It was really, really different. And the joy when the war came down, we weren't living there then, but the joy was just so intense. It was, it was fabulous. So this, this must have 
fired up your imagination. You know, you're having these dreams of space shuttles and astronauts, and you did want to be a writer from from a young age, didn't you? I did. Um, yeah, that, that was when we were living in Hong Kong, so before Berlin, uh, and, <laughs> and indeed after. Um, my father was serving out in Hong Kong by the border, another border with China. And um, I was seven when we first went, and we lived in a village uh, up high in the hills um, in the New Territories. And I'd been a really talkative girl at school. I was always getting in trouble for talking to my friends, and suddenly they weren't there anymore. I was on the other side of the world. and. We had a, I, I just, I was really lonely to start with. And we had a library uh, that was like a little converted ice cream man that used to come to our little village every fortnight or so. And my mother would take me and we'd just take out all the books we were allowed. And so I just read for like a year. I, I, I read all the sort of the classics. I read lots of Enid Blyton and E. Nesbitt and Noel Stretfield and all of those kind of things. Anthony Buckeridge. I really got into the Jennings books. Right. Anyone who was a kid in the 70s might know. Um, and, and that's where I wanted to become a writer. I just thought these people have saved my life and I want to be able to do that for somebody one day is just write something they can get lost in. And so, yeah, I wanted to do that from the age of about seven or eight. And by the time I was published, I was 42. The longing never went away. Let, let's yeah. talk about that. I mean, as I understand it, writing, you, you enjoyed writing, but the idea of publishing putting your head over the parapet being published was there a bit of fear in that yeah I, I read in your bio there's a sort of back to the future Martin McFly analogy going on there yeah I saw the the really lovely video of Michael J Fox yesterday oh, um God, at the comic-con thing and um and it really yeah it, 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 it took me back to the film and just how brave he's being at the moment but yes, Marty McFly doesn't want to launch his band because he's terrified that he will try and fail yeah, and then yeah. his dream will be over. And that's how I felt. I just didn't dare write a novel in case it was terrible and it didn't get published and my dream was over. And I didn't really have another one that I felt as passionately about. Um, and so I procrastinated for years and years. And I, I was a lobbyist and um, I did a PhD and I was a management consultant and I'd, I had a string of freelance jobs. Um, and then I, I wrote a novel and sure enough, it didn't get published. And, and then I discovered that actually the world did not come to an end. So I wrote another novel and that didn't get published. <laughs> so I wrote another novel and that didn't get published. So I wrote another novel <laughs> and eventually um, I won a competition and the prize was publication finally. Wow. And now your first, am I right in thinking your first novel that was unpublished was called The Body of a Dancer? Yes. Gosh, you have been reading my stuff. And it got some some praise from a very special person, didn't it? Tell us about that. Well, yeah, my mother was always my my greatest um, supporter. She kind of still is. And um, she was sitting next to, as as the kind of thing that she would do, she was sitting next to this lovely woman saying, oh, my daughter's written a novel. And the woman was saying, well done her. Uh, and it turned out that she was P.D. James's editor. And uh, my mother said, will you read my daughter's book? And she said, yes. Um, and, and she did. And she really liked it, bless her. And that gave me enormous encouragement to sort of take me through the next 10 years of rejection to think, yeah. you know, she liked it. And it still is the best title for a detective book that I've, I've yet written. <laughs> well, look, tell us about, tell us about, because you had a, before... The Queen came along before Her Majesty the Queen Investigates came along. You had basically a decade uh, as a successful children's author. So tell us about that competition that sort of launched you into that. And of course, you won an award. You won the Goldsborough RNA Romantic Novel of, uh, of the Year Award for the book Love Song. Tell us about that whole period and and how that that panned out. For for many, this would be sort of the, the dream come true. And, and was it that for you? Yeah, I keep having the dream come true. <laughs> it keeps sort of coming and then fading and then coming again. Uh, yeah, Threads was amazing. Threads was my first published book. Um, doing my usual thing. Um, it was 2008. We'd had the crash. So my, my sort of serial freelance jobs was, was looking very, very unlikely. And I, I had no idea how we were going to live, and nor did my husband really. And, and he just had to retire early. So it was all quite scary and exciting. Um, so he looked after our baby when I went off to the library to write. And um, my, my mother again said, oh, by the way, that children's book you're writing, um, there's a competition in the Times and the prize is a £10,000 publishing contract. 
Um, and I looked it up and sure enough, it's run with Chicken House. And the thing that had inspired me to, to really try um, several years before um, was Harry Potter coming out. Mm-hmm. And in fact, selling it to America for $100,000, which I thought was really impressive. <laughs> um, and so Barry Cunningham was the guy who took um, Harry Potter out from under the stairs. Um, and I submitted the novel and yeah, Barry rang me and I still remember exactly where I was um, and and said, you're you're through to the last six. Wow. Um, and then and then I won. Um, <laughs> There's 2000 entries, I think, uh, at 10,000 pound publishing contracts. Um, and that became a trilogy. Right. Uh, and it was really exciting. We sold it to, I think, 18 countries. Wow. Um, and so I could actually live on my earnings, which was incredibly exciting. <laughs> um, and, and so I, I did live on my earnings for about three years. It was wonderful. And I, in, the, in all, yeah, I wrote 10 children's books. Um, and it was the fourth one. No, it was the seventh one that won the um, Romantic Novel of the Year Award. That was amazing. That was such a shock. I hadn't prepared anything at all because I wasn't expecting that. Truly <laughs> gave me the award. Um, but I mean, but my earnings didn't stay that high. And so I um, I started teaching and mentoring as well. Um, and I started doing it for the money. And in fact, <laughs> the um, the folder that I have uh, in my uh, my mail says teaching and fees just to remind me <laughs> why I was doing this um, and I completely fell in love with it I loved it loved my students loved doing it I taught at City Lit uh, I lectured in children's writing at City University I did various master classes and dialogue and other things I worked with Golden Egg Academy mm. and um, and so for, for a, a long time I, I had this as so many of us do this dual career of, of writing uh, and teaching. And it's lovely because uh, I said to all my students, you know, it took me 10 years and they all went, yeah, yeah, right. But I could see them thinking it's going to take me six months, poor you yeah, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. But now it's starting to happen for them. And one of them has just, you know, six figure deal, multiple Brilliant. auctions, multiple countries. And I'm so thrilled for her. So yeah, it's lovely to see the next generation coming through. That's brilliant. It's brilliant. But, I just want to dial back because you, you know you said you did was it seven books over ten years as a as a you know a YA, ten books over ten years ten books <laughs> over ten years as a YA yeah. author. Most people listening to this will think, well, surely that's the gravy train. Surely the you know uh, money from those books will be coming in on a regular basis and paying the bills and paying. But I think I mean I know this and you know this. That's not always the case, is it? So what were you you know you you took on the second career as teaching. With, with teaching but was there any part of you thinking surely I should be earning a living from this surely I, I shouldn't have to have a second career was was there any disillusion there yeah there really was when I when I started out so Threads was published in 2009 so it was just it was after the crash and I remember the people I was working with who'd worked with JK Rowling at the beginning going the market is just terrible this is awful we've never seen it like this before and I was thinking, hey, I'm selling to loads of countries. This is great. Um, if this is as bad as it can get, then that's all right. <laughs> uh, and then it just got worse and worse. And statistically, I was finding my income was going down. Mm. All my writing friends were. And, and lots of people over the years were, were just stopping. Uh, they just couldn't do it anymore. They couldn't support themselves. Um, and, and I tried not to talk to my students too much about the statistics but they are just so dreadful and I'd still say to anyone please don't give up your day job partly you'll be able to use it for material so that's good um but also you'll probably need it um UKYA was what I was writing really young adult fiction and it gets fantastic press but very few people actually manage to make a living out of it Mm. um you know I think most people don't realize that you know, if your book gets sold for £7.99, you might be lucky and make 50p, but yeah. often it's discounted and you kind of want it to be so people will buy it. And then you might be making 2p a copy, even, mm. you know, some of my books. I think that's what I was making. Um, and one of my recent royalty statements for, for one of those books was 97p. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's, it doesn't it doesn't kind of bankroll you for life. No. They didn't even round it up to a pound. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and bless them, my, my German publishers still still resolutely send me things, but they're generally about two pounds thirty seven or something for the books that that came out in sort of two thousand and ten eleven. Uh, wow. So yeah, it's not a pension. No, no. But then you have this genius idea, this absolutely genius idea about a cyborg billionaire detective. Uh, but then you have another genius idea, Her Majesty the Queen investigates. But you have this idea, but then you get a diagnosis for breast cancer. And, you know, so it was, and I know that you called it early, um, but obviously that is not, that is a stone cold, you know, stops you in your tracks moment. What were your thoughts about writing a career and all of that stuff happening together? You've got this brilliant idea. You've got, you know, this is incredibly commercial. And then you get that diagnosis. What was going through your mind at that time? I was in the middle of a really intensive course with the Royal Literary Fund to become a consultant fellow and help people researching for um, further degrees with their writing style. Loved the course, loved people. So actually, a lot of what was going through my head was, am I going to be well enough for our next away weekend for all the workshops and things we're going to be doing? And trying to get well for that. Um, also, my the, the book I had coming out at the time was, was called The Bigger Picture. And it was a factual book, one of my favourite books I've ever done about women artists. And it was, will I be well enough after radiotherapy to go to the Oxford Festival and talk about it? I just managed to, to make. And so actually it was all about that. And I had this kind of relentlessly positive attitude, as you say, I it was caught early, the operation fixed it, the radiotherapy was completely fine. I didn't have to have chemo. Um, so I've been really struggling with how, how to write my queen idea. And um, and I'd been writing first chapters and they weren't working. I was showing them to my husband and he was saying, you could do better than that. He's, he's lovely and honest. Um, <laughs> but what happened with the radiotherapy was it was 12 weeks and they said, just pace yourself, take it easy. And I thought, oh, that'd be fine. I mean, I'll, I'll write for three hours in the morning and then it'll, you know, I'll carry on. And I couldn't, I couldn't do anything apart from just go to the radiotherapy, come home, have a nap for 12 right. weeks. Right. And it was amazing because when I finished, I had, my brain was refreshed. I, I hadn't, I hadn't had to sort of put it through any any real mental stress for 12 weeks. I had been gentle on myself. I got myself ready to do this amazing event at the Oxford Literary Festival. And, and by coincidence, my author photograph was taken that day. <laughs> I say coincidence, and it was coincidence, but the lovely professional photographer that day just said, oh, stand by that pillar. And it took one minute. And I think it, it just shows me really happy and relaxed because I'd had 12 right. weeks of being looked after um, really beautifully. And I think that's how I wrote The Windsor Knot. I think I wrote it very quickly off the back of 12 weeks of taking the pressure off. Right. Um, so actually, the cancer forms a, a bizarrely positive part of the whole story. It's, it's really strange, but I hadn't ever given myself that, that time to just kind of regroup forces. Right. Um, and I think that the pandemic had different effects on people, didn't it? You know, a lot of us had just stressed us out completely, but perhaps there have been some people who similarly had an enforced break that, that had positive artistic consequences mm. as well. Yeah, yeah. So you you finished um, Windsor Not, the first book, and you take it out there. How was it received? Um, I had about six agents in mind, big agents, who I was really keen on sending it to. And I had this, you know, I had this back catalogue of stuff. It was in a different genre. Yeah. I wrote it completely. My original plan was I'll write 10,000 words and submit. But in the end, I thought, I don't know if I can write a detective story. I've written one before. I know it didn't get published, so that doesn't mean too very much. <laughs> um, so actually, I, it was complete by the time I sent it out to anyone. And, and the first agent I sent it to got back to me within 24 hours saying wow. no. <laughs> Oh, right. And I thought, thank you. And I honestly thought, thank you, because I don't have to waste my time worrying. I can get yeah. on with the next one. I was genuinely grateful. Um, and the next one said no. And the next one said no. I thought, I'm, I'm used to this. <laughs> and in the end, um, I, I met the fantastic Charlie Campbell, who's my agent now. And Charlie just, and I was ready to self-publish. My husband and I were all ready to go with this. Um, and Charlie said, no, we can take it to London Book Fair. And I'm really excited about this. I think we can do amazing things. And in fact, he said, I've already shown it to someone who's shown it to someone at Mondadori. And they're really excited. Um, and Mondadori ended up being the first people to, to buy it. 
And there was this amazing buzz around it. It was just really incredible. And we very quickly had about sort of seven or eight people interested. Um, and it was going to auction in Germany and France. And there was preempt um, in the UK and a five book deal. And and then and then I had the dream again. You know, I'd already had the dream with threads. And I had the even bigger dream when there are six big editors in New York who want your book. And you spend two days on the phone, sitting in your son's bedroom, because he's just gone off to university, <laughs> sitting on the floor of his bedroom, on the phone to New York while they sell themselves to you because wow. they want to publish your book. And it was just a dream <laughs> of a lifetime. Um, it was extraordinary. And then, and then that went to auction and the auction started off like this would be great and then it went to this is ridiculous <laughs> and then it went to oh bloody hell what are they thinking um it was amazing and that week we went into our first lockdown so right you know I honestly thought my 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 year of getting well from cancer was the you know the strange year but the following year was just yeah we all went through it it was mm. just crazy yeah. wow when lockdown happened, was there any moment where you thought, oh, God, publishing is going to fall to its knees and all of this could could crumble around me? Um, or is that just me being pessimistic? <laughs> I didn't because the publishers were so excited. While right. New York was going on, I hadn't heard anything from France and Germany, and so I assumed it had all fizzled out, and I thought, well, fair enough. But actually, the auctions were, were going on there as well, and they were amazing too, and Everyone was so excited. And, and in fact, what happened was, I, mean, I, I just felt unbelievably lucky, and I was. Um, what people were thinking was everyone is just so miserable and uncertain, and what they need is fiction that will be yeah. reassuring, and they want to imagine somebody in charge who knows what they're doing mm. and who's kind and who's empathetic and compassionate. And um, and that's kind of what I was trying to write. And there was this other TV guy who was doing something as well called Richard Osman, and he had a book about to come out, um, which I have Never to say I'd, I'd been excited about ever since I heard he was going to do it. I knew he would do it incredibly well. Mm. Um, so there was this buzz about what we were trying to do, and I hadn't been before. You know, it was I was because I loved it, and because I'd been reading it since I was about eight. I loved the golden age crime traditional mystery. Yeah. Thing. But it wasn't a big thing in publishing then. Hard to imagine now, but it wasn't really then. It was a little backwater. Um, and and then, yeah, I just watched it grow and grow. It was very, very sad for my publishers because they had all these plans in different countries. My, my German publishers had this amazing campaign that they were going to do in bookshops. And, you know, they, they'd made all these life-size figures of the Queen and things. And, and they couldn't do them because the bookshops oh. weren't open so I was incredibly sad for them, but but yeah, it was just it was the moment to be writing reassuring fiction. I guess um, I got to meet Richard um, right. in April, which was a real um, highlight for me. And we were both talking about the fact that as individuals, we were both despairing about the world that we were living in, but as writers, we wanted to celebrate everything that we thought was good about the world: people coming together, people looking after each other. So that's what we tried to write about. Wonderful stuff. Now, the Majesty of the Queen investigates it. They're, I mean, they're very funny. That you you just hear her voice and Philip's voice immediately. These these characters, they they sort of leap off the page because we think we know them, you know. And uh, it's, it's brilliantly written. But of course, real life in the real world and uh, has come along. And the Queen died weeks ago. Um, I know you've got a five book deal. Is that where the series will end? The books are set in 2016, at least that Murder Most Royal is set in 2016. Can the series continue? Could there be a prequel series? It will, is it something that will go on and on? How? What's the, what's the future for the series? It was always my plan uh, from that, that weekend driving up and, and planning them out. Um, I, I thought, well, I'll start off, I'll make my life easy and I'll set them in the near past so I don't have to do too much historical research yeah but you know the queen had the most amazing life in the 1970s when I I first got interested in her she was traveling around the world um uh you know on Britannia a lot and I thought well I could set some really interesting books there and then I could go back to the 
50s. I could go back to the 30s even when she was a teenager because mm. I imagine she's been solving crimes since she was about 12. Yeah. Um, I could do pre-war. I could join the war. So I'd always had this idea that I would gradually go back in time. Great. Um, I found it really hard, actually, when Prince Philip died because I was just so surprised. I knew, obviously, you know, they're both in their 90s. I knew it was going to happen. And I wanted to write books for generations that didn't know them as you know, people in their lives and, and just, as I say, sort of celebrate what we love. Goodness, I am the first to agree that there were lots of controversial things about, you know, that, and there are about the royal family and certain members of it and all sorts of things. But I do think the Queen and Prince Philip wanted to do the best they could. And I used to take that for granted, but some of the leaders we have today, I don't think you even can take that for granted <laughs> these days. Um, so I wanted to celebrate that. Um, yeah, and, and go back in time. Um, so I was I was really sad and kind of discombobulated when when he died much faster than I than I thought he would. Um, I was going to have a fourth book that was set in Balmoral in 2017, um, and we were going to call it the Day of the Corgi. And I kind of miss <laughs> that we can't really do that now. But the idea was it was kind of the Day of the Jackal meets the Thirty Nine Steps um, <laughs> in Balmoral was with the Queen as the target, and we all just thought, you know what? No, we can't do that. It's right. it's just too close. But so I've skipped that book and um and I'm doing what I so what I originally planned and I'm going back in time and setting another trilogy further back. Brilliant. Um and yeah, and we'll we'll see what happens. Um but it's it's lovely because for, for me, uh, I'm still living in this world. And and my queen in in the first trilogy is underestimated because she's old. She's a little old lady. There's a bit of a Miss Marple thing going on. Mm. Um, and my my queen in the books I'm writing now is underestimated because she's young. Right. <laughs> you yes. can't win. Um, <laughs> yeah. So she's surrounded by the men in moustaches um, who, who are trying to tell her what to do. And um, she thinks she knows better because actually she does. Fantastic. Sounds absolutely brilliant. Really, really cool. Uh, oh, also, you have a podcast. Now, look, we don't plug other people's podcasts, especially ones that talk to writers, editors, agents about the process, writing tips, and how to make it as a new writer. So we can't talk about pre-published your podcast, which is available everywhere. We can't can't do it. So No, yeah, can't no, be done. Yeah. No. Rival podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, tell us about tell us about that. How did it how did that all start off for you? It came about because I was teaching and because I um there, there are certain things that come up all the time, you know, characterization the story arc, the hero's journey, um, the importance of dialogue. Um, and and you can't actually talk about them too much or too often because they are really important and some mm. things really work. You know, and I'd always say it, there are no rules. For every rule that you tell me, I will show you a, several genius novels that deliberately break yep. it. But they're, but like recipes, you know, there are things that do work nicely. You know, if you mix eggs and flour and sugar and butter together, you get a cake and, you know, if you, you swap the butter for oranges, it might not work so well unless you're a real <laughs> culinary genius. Um, so it came about because of that. And, and I, I, I just, you know, been so lucky to know some fantastic writers and agents and, uh, and editors. And it was great to get them in and, and talk about different aspects of, um, of their work. And, you know, just, just this craft of doing it, how blimmin' difficult it is, mm. how we all struggle with it. Um, so I mean, I managed to talk to people like Sophie Hanna and and Cass Green um, and Candy Gourlay and uh, just a whole raft of people that that um, that I managed to, to get in. Lots of my heroes, lots of my kids' heroes as writers as well. Uh, Robert Marchmore was a great person to, to chat to. Um, so yeah, it's been a lovely opportunity just to kind of compare notes, I guess. Fantastic, brilliant. What well, look, folks. Her Majesty the Queen Investigates, the whole series is out there. Go grab them now. They they are a ton of fun. Um, Sophia, thank you so much for speaking to me today and hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you again. It's been really lovely being on today. Wow. I mean, that, it's quite an incredible story. There's so much to unpack there. Uh, I think we should really dive in, Mark, to begin with, on, on the whole journey that um, Sophia had with the fear and procrastination that happened, the fear of failure I mean, this is a, I think, a very common story that a lot of people listening will will think, yeah, actually, I'm in that process right now. Maybe thinking they've given up because they don't think there's any way forward. But it's a fascinating tale, isn't it? 
and it is very, very common. I mean, there's there's a reason we love Back to the Future as a movie. It's not just the time travel stuff and the jokes. It is that theme of fear of failure that Marty McFly goes through. We all really, really relate to that. I mean, whatever, you know, he was, um, <clears throat> excuse me, he, you know, he wanted to be a rock and roll star and, and play in a band and what have you, but also there's the fate he doesn't want to commit to his relationship, doesn't want to commit, commit to anything. And that's his, that's his journey of change through the story. And, um, yeah, I think... Uh, there'll be a lot of writers listening to this thinking, what if what if it doesn't work? What if I don't get a deal? What if I get rejected? And even if I do get published, what if people hate it? It's a very, very common fear. And uh, it's, um, you know, it, part of your journey as a writer is learning to cope with that and grasping that nettle and, and f- confronting that fear. And the thing is, it doesn't go away. You know, I, I'm six books into into a career. Um, Sophia is, you know, well into her career. And I, 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 I don't know a single writer who is just, yeah, I'm going to put a book out and I'm not worried about it at all. That, that worry never, ever goes away. So it is a fact of life. I think whatever creative endeavor you do, be it writing or music or acting or whatever, that fear of failure is always there. But it's something we have to confront. It's something we have to learn to live with and cope with and it becomes a companion on the way and in some ways we talked last week you know about going too far do you remember they had that conversation about going too far it's it sort of goes hand in hand with that in that you have to push yourself a little more each time you have to do something that's a little bit scary otherwise you will get stuck in a rut ending up doing the same thing again and ironically i think if you end up doing the same thing again and again and just retreading uh, old ground you will fail. I think you will. You will have so doing the skip. If only there was a book called "Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway." Um, yeah, you know, to, that's to a good of... title, actually. Mark. <laughs> Write that down. I, I might nick that one. <laughs> <laughs> but it is true, though, isn't it? I think that um, you know. I think one of the things one of the things we have to recognise as as authors, and actually any any uh, you know route that we choose to go in life, is that it's actually not about not being fearful it's about dealing with the fear in a in a a positive and proactive way like using it you know uh, you know using it to your advantage i think when people just are completely absorbed in it that's where they hit dead ends and if i were to do a very kind of unscientific rough poll of all the people i've ever coached in the last 15 15 20 years i would say that a good 40 percent come to my door with this story where they haven't actually yet taken that step across the threshold, taken that step across, you know, into the unknown world, because because of the fear of failure, fear of criticism. Um, so I think it, it's you know that's just I mean a, a rough a rougher idea, but like four in ten, it's probably. A, but then the other six in ten, they're all still dealing with the fear. It's just that they're dealing with it in slightly different ways, or they're or they're motivated enough by all the good stuff that they're hoping to get from it that that really brings them across the threshold as well. So it's really interesting. The other thing I'll say as well is I think that, you know, SJ talked about the procrastination side of things. I think procrastination can play quite a major part in this. Um, We can sometimes use the excuse of worrying about what might happen to actually not do the work. And that is a, that is primarily a form of procrastination, not a form of fear. It's kind of using the fear to just not do it. So you have to kind of separate the two and ask yourself, what's going on here? You know, is it that you're truly like paralyzed with fear and you you never want to put your work out there? Or is it that you're just looking for, you know, additional excuses as to why not to go out there? And and it's very complex, very intricate, but yeah, lots to think about there for sure. And she wrote she wrote four novels before getting published. And she said, you know, I, I wrote them, they got rejected and the world didn't come to an end. And I think that's, that's an important lesson to learn is that rejection and blind alleys and things not working again, is just part of this career. It's part of what we do. Not everything will get published. Not everything will work. You just have to, um, you know, you just have to get used to that. It's uh, it's part of what we do. Do you know, it's one thing I was reflecting on this week, someone I know had a, a breakup and um, I used to think back to like, uh, people always talk about, you know, the early days when you start dating, like in your teens maybe, and you fall madly in love with someone and you think it's forever and you think this person is going to be the one. And then things don't work out for whatever reason. And the heartbreak of that first breakup is absolutely 
painful and challenging, but having gone through it, it gives you a foundation to build on. You know more what you want in a relationship. You know more about the things you like in a person that you can't stand, you know. Uh, it gives you a sense of, you know, when you, if it were to happen again, it's like, okay, I've been here before. And the same is true with writing. I think you kind of, we all have to have that first crushing defeat or rejection yeah. or blow <laughs> because actually it's 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 the calluses, you know, on the fingertips of the guitarist that have to form because honestly, it is training for when it when you do get you know any kind of success because it doesn't just keep going success, success, success. It often flip flops, you know, success, failure, success, failure. But as long as you're on the outward trajectory, things are great. But I think that's why we say in the academy, we always celebrate when people are posting up in the wins forum now when they get rejected, and we're like, hey, brilliant badge of honor. And it's and it's about like kind of seeing it as a as as a, as a win. It's a progression in your um in your journey as a writer so yeah it is about just having to, to jump in and, and wait for the face it's, it's part of the life it's part of the life of an author it is a fact of life that you're going to get rejected even a, and you know we'll, we'll talk in the extended edition about uh sophia's career change and uh, that kind of second career that she got out of this but you know this is it happens constantly i'm constantly especially in screenwriting where you've got even slimmer chances of any kind of success. I'm constantly writing stuff that never gets made and you just have to, it's part of life. But if you don't roll the dice, you're not in the game, you know? So it is a badge of honour to be rejected. It is a badge of honour to get a snotty review or, or for a book to die on its ass because it's all part of the game you know it's uh it's it, you can't be success after success after success i don't think any author even stephen king has had books that haven't worked yeah you know? absolutely uh, so, yeah, we just don't we all we see all we see on this side of the fence are the books that do work because they're the ones that get to publication they get on the, the shelves in your major bookstores and so it looks like wow Look at this dude. He just knocks it out of the park. You know, Ed Sheeran writes three songs a day, two of them you've never heard and you never will hear. <laughs> right? It's just, just how it works. <laughs> I was just going to say, just, as, a, as, a, as a badge of honour thing, um, uh, uh, Robert o Overlord's got a mention in the Radio Times this week, right? On the sidebar, you know, their films of the day. And I thought, oh, films of the day. And the, the review was quite positive. I said, this is a good old fashioned adventure. Two stars. What? You know, so again, it's just, you know, hey, I'm in the Radio Times. Oh, and they hate it. <laughs> they give us and they take away. Take away. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh my it's like, you know, we're just going to highlight how crap we think you are. But, you know, it's just, uh, it's just one of those things, you know. You but the get... fact is, they're showing it on TV, which, which yeah. is like, which is ridiculous because if it's if some people think it's all it's all people's opinions i mean what opinions well exactly they also gave uh valerian which is one of the worst science fiction films i've seen in the last 10 years they gave that four stars so immediately their, their opinion is suspect maybe maybe it's a reverse star rating maybe one star is the best film and <laughs> no, five stars is terrible who knows no anyway <laughs> let's talk mark about what sj bennett uh, referred to when she talked about teaching because it's something we can relate to we want to kind of broaden this oh, a bit yeah. and t talking about celebrating as a writer or a teacher but you know mainly a writer celebrating the success of other writers and how it's not something that like just because someone else is doing well it takes away from our uh, yeah. potential it's like everyone can celebrate there's enough there's enough space for everyone Absolutely. And it's not a zero sum game. You know, people don't have to fail for you to succeed. And certainly this has been one of the biggest joys of this podcast and the Academy is having, you know, this group of people around us, uh, you know, uh, either on Patreon or the Academy or our, our, our Facebook group and seeing that. I mean, this is why we have the wins at the end of the show, because every week there's a great bit of news that we've heard from someone. And it's uh, it's it's been one of the great joys is is to for me has been to, to to you know to to celebrate and share share the the good news with these people, and um and take a part in that and, and feel that you know we're all in this together, uh, because there is a lot of um bad news out, a lot of rejections, you know things not working, blah blah blah. But 
we, you know, there's there's always good news if you can go looking for it as well and you put the call out and, and we're now at a point where every week we've got people telling us about, about their wins. And it inspires me now in a way that I perhaps six years ago when we started out might not have might not have done so. I think that's been a big change in me. It's just hearing other people's good news keeps me going. And I think particularly if you had some, as uh, Sophia was saying, you know, she's 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 been teaching people and they're now having successes. And if you can feel that you've had a part in that, I mean, how many books I've got? You know, a shelf of books there of people who've been published one way or another because of something they heard on the podcast and we get mentions in the back of them as well you know we had uh was it um gb ralph's book and uh denise mcgarn's new book so denise did alice larson and gb ralph did murder on uh, uh, on milverton square we get a mention in the back of that mr d you and me and uh, yeah yeah it's great in the acknowledgements it's just wonderful it's uh and i've i've lost count of the number of books where we're mentioned in the acknowledgements because of because of this podcast now could you have imagined that you know six years ago the fact that you do you know it's incredible? This month, last Monday, I did my uh, my uh, life coaching for writers in the academy, and I I started a tradition now. Every every session, begin every session, I celebrate the wins, and we collate all of the wins that that we've got from all the people in the academy. This Monday, it went, and these are bullet points, probably uh-huh. seven per page, six pages of wins. <laughs> Took Bloody me up. ten minutes. To get through, it's like getting to a point where it's like we're going to just have a win session where we just like, but it, but it's the fact that it's you can just see that build, you see that build. It's like, and and do you know what? It's I always have to get a reference to the World Cup in whilst it's on because that's part of my uh, <laughs> my drinking game I'm doing currently. But but like you look at the World Cup and and it's I mean I love it, but you the tears, the tears at the end of the game when that one country's got knocked out and then you have got the other one like absolutely celebrate. And and that's not what it's like in writing. It's not that, you know, there's a winner and therefore there has to be a loser. Everyone spurs each other on. And I say actually in some ways, having a, and the reason we celebrate wins is we want we want people to, ins- to be inspired by the successes of other people because everyone has uh, different journeys, unique journeys, but there's often s- very similar things, you know, over, that they've had to overcome. And it's when you hear someone say, well, if, if they can do that, then maybe I can do that. And that's why I think it's super important to to actually journey with other writers. Is because it's one thing if you hear if somebody hears like you know random name that they never heard of who's released their book, that's great. But there's something about knowing that person or having beta read the book for them or given them some feedback on their blurb or in some way being part of their journey. And the more writers you can find to do that with the more writers you'll have that doing doing the same for you and you'll feel this real kind of like sense of community as you move forward so yes it's very 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 important and often overlooked absolutely brilliant stuff well listen folks if you would like to to continue uh chatting with us during the extended we're going to talk about some fantastic um other areas which we don't have time for on the on this on the uh, normal podcast uh so we're going to talk about um the realities of author income the ups and downs of the life of an author we're going to also talk a little bit about what a book auction actually is because sj referred to that and we're going to talk about why they're so amazing and we'll talk about the uh idea of changing genre mid-career so if you'd like to join mark and i on the extended version of this podcast uh, simply become a patron of the show pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and we'll uh you can get access to all of the extended podcasts we've done and the deep dives so it's absolutely brilliant so it's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support so what's happening in social media this week sir Lots of wins and a public declaration. We've got all sorts of good stuff. Now, over on the Academy, Michaela Limkin uh, has just published a book. And she said, I looked at my KDP Amazon dashboard and there it was, £4.33. pence, One book sale. And my Ingram Spark dashboard says I've sold six there, but they don't seem to tell me how many pennies that is. Uh, so, yeah, to, to celebrate, I knocked out a thousand words uh, as 20 uh, social media posts, which my daughter is going to manage for me and do all that clever stuff with Facebook and Instagram that remains a mystery to me. So this is a family business. This is amazing. So uh, 
Michaela, fantastic. Congratulations, you're off. That's more than 97p as well. So that's... Well, uh, it is. It's like five <laughs> times the amount. But I also want to say to Michaela, how brilliant, how brilliant that she's involved in, or her family wants to be involved in what she's doing. Everyone says, oh, I have to do all this stuff myself. Like, if you can get, if you've got kids... I mean, we know it's hard. Like they don't, they don't do the washing up. They they don't make their bed. They the rooms, uh, the floors are a state. But you know what? If you can get them engaged in some part of what you're doing with the book world, the the benefits to them down the road, you have no idea. I mean, you think back. I think back to when I was like shoveling drives when I was like 10, 10 years of age, and and you know, you get a little bit of you know, money from that. And then you think, well, what if I should get my mate to come with me and do it with me and we can get twice as many. You know, it, it's all these things trigger. So I think it's brilliant. And, and so involve your kids, get them doing something, maybe pay them a little bit of commission on a, when you sell a book, because whatever, whatever they gain in experience, it's, it beats anything they'll get in a degree or a, a school. It's the real world out there. And that's where it all happens. So brilliant, excellent stuff. Really, really good stuff. Uh, Angela Nurse, uh, has got uh, just celebrated publication day for book three in her series, which is the Rowan McFarlane Detective Mysteries. And book three is What She Didn't See. It's now available on Kindle and paperback. And uh, this is a brilliant news. Now, Angela has had a, a hell of a year. Uh, we mentioned her on the on the program before. She also made our little, um, if you're looking at this on video, Blue, the bestseller experiment bear, little crochet bear, which uh, sits on my microphone there. So uh, this has been great news for Angela. So big, big celebration for Angela there. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can check that out as well. The terrific series. And she's, been, she's been experimenting with the covers and I think she's absolutely cracked it. Really, really great covers for these. So congrats there, Angela. And also uh, Lorna, Lorna uh, Cook, who has been you know with us from very, very early on. She's now writing also as L Cook and her new book, The Man I Never Met, is out from Penguin. And it's I saw it in Sainsbury's the other day. Just and that. It's just that everywhere, isn't it? In yeah, all Tesco's, bookstores Astor's, and yeah. grocery stores. Yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> that's fantastic. the dream. In the extended, really we were, we were talking about the dream of getting an auction, but the other another major dream is if you you know you've made it when dot 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 right. You know you made it when. <laughs> Your book is one of those books in the supermarket. So congratulations, yeah. Lorna. Wow. Yeah, Just keeps going from strength to strength, doesn't she? Really, really does. And uh, finally, we've got a public declaration from Rosemary Deuce, who is in the BXP group on uh, Facebook. She says, I'm going to finish the first draft of my current book, The Mystery at Sorrel Farm, which is a working title, by 31st of March, 2023. Um, so yes, Rosemary, send the diary. I'll be in touch closer to the time. Good luck, good luck, good luck. And if you'd like to also send us your public declarations to get your accountability, then uh, pop along to the website, bestsellerexperiment.com, click on the Contact Us form and send Mark and I a message. And uh, as Mark said, he puts it in his diary of declarations. Actually, that's quite yeah. a nice 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 ring to it that diary of declarations <laughs> and uh so so yeah and if you if you'd also once you once you're on the website if you pop along to the newsletter tab you can also get weekly newsletters from us about each episode that we do and your christmas jokes send us your christmas jokes you've got two days 7th of december we need it by then thank you um and if you want to find us on social media uh facebook is bestseller experiment twitter if it's still there at bestseller xp instagram at bestseller xp drop us a line there we love to hear from you fantastic and if you would like to get the writing habit of a lifetime remember folks the 200 word challenge is for you 200wordchallenge.com is the website to go to register for the free challenge, can you write consecutively for seven days? And if you can, could you extend it to 30 days? And if you do 30, maybe you'd be like a few people that have written a million words or writing for over a thousand consecutive days. There are two examples of what's happened when somebody's crazy enough to try and write 200 words in one day. So you never know what will happen, but trust me, you will write more books in your lifetime and more words in your lifetime if you jump on that challenge so pop along 200wordchallenge.com and obviously mark we can't leave the show without reminding people of the best seller academies or if you want to have mark and i as your coaches you'll join us for live coaching sessions where you can ask us questions chat with us and we work on themes mark does one power punch-ups which are absolutely hugely successful you've got a christmas theme coming up haven't you in do, december yeah. mark that's going to be exciting um and if you'd also like to to join a community of like-minded wonderfully 
inspiring and encouraging individuals, the Bestseller Academy is for you. So remember to pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Get your name down, down before Christmas, because we're starting again in the new year with our new cohort. So uh, academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Brilliant stuff, Mr. Stay. Well, listen, have a fantastic week. I'm off to shovel the snow. We had a <laughs> massive dumping. Car wouldn't start. Buses weren't running for the schools. All kinds of snowmageddon happening here in Canada. But as if I should be complaining, I moved here. I knew it <laughs> snowed. And uh, anyway, so everyone out, everyone out there in the in our friends in Australia, we're not jealous at all. Have a lovely time on the beach this afternoon. Um, don't get sunburned. And uh, think of us whilst we're wrapping up warm here. But um, wishing and wishing this time of year, Mark, you know, you, you're there, you've showed up with your cold and your, your germs and everything. I think it's brilliant that you're here, but I also just want to put it out to anyone out there who's struggling with the sniffles, with COVID, with, with any kind of ailment. Uh, we want to send you our warmth and love from the bestseller experiment HQ, and we hope that you feel very better soon. So, absolutely. So, it's a goodbye from Mark <laughs> One. <laughs> Mark's going to cough us out. My voice is gone. My voice is gone. There's a goodbye from Mark Two. He's excellent. Bye. Thank you so much, folks. Take care. Bye bye.